This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Hello, everyone. Evidence for Faith, the official voice of Rashio Christie. This is the radio show where we help you learn how to live a happy life, where we discuss the ideas and philosophy that leads to a fulfilled, abundant life. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, I'm Kirk Hastings. I'm Kevin Harrow. And the three of us are going to be talking about some very interesting topics today. Multiple topics on today's show, so we will get to that in a minute. I just want to remind people that you can check us out on evidenceforfaith.com, our website, where you can find archived shows. If you like podcasts, you can find us on either iTunes or on Android system, you can find us on Double Twist. And our email is at email at evidenceforfaith.com. So it's evidence, the number for faith.com. And check out the mother organization, ratiochristi.org. Well, Kirk, it's great to be back to the show. You guys had a great show on the deity of Christ last week. Yeah, and uh, interesting story I have for you. Did you know that a friend of mine thinks that Kevin is an angel? Ooh, that's cool. You know why? Why would he say that? He he thinks you're an angel because I said you work for spirit and you fly around a lot. Uh, <laughs> yes, he does. That's true. My passengers don't always think I'm an angel when I land sometimes, though. <laughs> yeah, when you hit those air pockets. Oh, you should yeah. have heard we were testing the microphone, Kirk, and we decided on a new way to open the show. Oh, so, yeah, it goes something like this. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Evidence for Faith, the new game show where you can win the opportunity to have eternal life. <laughs> On the other end of the microphone is our saint in residence, Kirk Hastings. Say hello, Kirk. Hello, Kirk. And on the other side of the table is the representative from hell, the devil, Kevin Harold. Hi, Kevin. I see you're wearing your new asbestos red suit. Hello, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, what, is, what do you think? What Will is Keith work? on today? <laughs> yeah, I think that'll work great, right? No, no. It'll definitely get attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what kind of attention it'll it'll get, but it reminds me of some of the comedy routine, uh, uh, routines that Isaac Airfreight did. Do you do you remember them? Have you heard of them? No. Uh, it's a Christian comedy group from the seventies and eighties. I think. Well, actually, eighties. I think. But I still have some records with them on. I don't know if people, well, our younger people won't know what records are. Records? But, what's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we could find some online, there's probably, somebody's probably converted them to digital and they're probably on the internet. We probably. could play them. Yeah, probably. You could put them there with that sound effect board that you're going to work on. <laughs> uh, uh. Uh, no, not going too well? <laughs> no. Let's test it. I would like, for this announcement, I need a drum roll. Hearing nothing, we continue on. <laughs> that means it's not uh, working too well. Week. This is from Frederick Buchner, and whoever he is, I didn't bother to look him up, but he does have a great quote, so it doesn't matter who he is, because this is a great quote. <laughs> he says, doubts 
are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I like that. <laughs> That's good. If you're having doubts, it means you're thinking. And if you're thinking, you're going to strengthen your faith. So at least if it's Christian faith, you will. So that is our quote of the week, and we want to do our turn our attention now to Kirk Hastings in the studio, who's going to be doing a special segment on myths. He is the myth breaker. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. We need some sound effects for this. Yeah. Okay. I Ooh. like it. That was dramatic. <laughs> yes, the myth it breaker. It sounds like, sounds like Alfred Hitchcock presents. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, so this week, trying to get serious here for a minute. Please stop uh, <laughs> it. We've uh, we've done a couple of segments in the past. We call myth busters or myth breakers. The first one was that Christianity is outdated and dying out, and we disproved that myth. Then the second one we uh, dealt with was most wars are caused by religion. Okay, and we did that one in. So today's. A uh, myth that we're going to break is that Christianity itself is a myth. Now, I've been getting a lot of comments on uh, some Facebook pages that I have on the Internet lately from atheists that like to tell me that there's no difference between the like the ancient uh, Greek and Roman mythology and Jesus Christ and the biblical God. Right, so, right. Yeah, in fact, I don't know if you saw the little interaction I was having with somebody on Facebook that wanted to know what the difference between God and Zeus was. And yes. when I paid attention to the more pertinent parts of the conversation, like about the evidence for the existence of God, she kept coming back with, how come you don't answer my question? Like it, that was some kind of a significant question. Well, believe so. it or not, I, I think that's a standard atheist question that goes around the Internet every couple of days, because I've heard a number of people uh, use the same comparison. Yeah, it's so, but it's sort of like saying... Um, what's the difference between a dog and a cat? Ah, oh, see? Look how significant that question is. My goodness, you can't answer that, can you? Well, they're both animals, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so let, let's start out by looking at a couple of uh, dictionary definitions of some words here so we can get our terms straight. Good idea. Okay, Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines myth as a person or thing having only an imaginary or unverifiable existence. Okay? Now, it defines mythical as based on or described in a myth, especially as contrasted with history. Okay? So now... There you go. Great. It's contrasting myths with history, and, and they're two different things. Right. Okay, now, under mythology, it defines that as an allegorical narrative. Now, for those who don't know what an allegory is, an allegory is an expression by means of symbolic fictional figures and actions, or a symbolic representation. Right, okay? right. Yeah, that's supposed to be the truth behind the myth. It's not actually historical, but there is some truth there in a mythological way. There's usually like a moral way. or something behind it. But yeah. the actual people and events in the story are not literally true. Okay, right, now or, it or defines... Maybe Maybe I guess the people might be, but the events aren't. That could be true, too. Right. Okay. Now, the next definition is history. Okay. The, the dictionary describes history as a systematic branch of knowledge that records and explains past events. Now, we can assume that means past true events. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, yep. 
we come to Christianity. The definition for Christianity in the dictionary is the religion derived from Jesus Christ based on the Bible. Right. Okay, you got that? Now, this is actually leading somewhere. Good. Okay, we like now, that. the dictionary definition for Jesus Christ. The dictionary says he was the Jewish religious leader whose life, death, and resurrection, as reported by the evangelists. Now, the evangelists were Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You could also include probably the Apostle Peter, the Apostle James, and the Apostle Paul in there. And uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the basis of the Christian message of salvation. Now, notice that the dictionary definition that I just read describes Jesus Christ as a real person, not as a fictional person or a mythological person or whatever. It treats him as if he's a real person. All right? Now, we come to the dictionary definition of the Bible. It uh, says, the Bible is a compilation of 66 ancient manuscripts comprising both the Old and the New Testaments, written over a span of 1,500-plus years by about 41 different authors in various different times and places. Now, I would personally add to that definition that the interesting thing about these these 66 manuscripts is that they present a unified, cohesive, consistent portrait of a transcendent God who created the universe in his attempts to save mankind. Now, that in itself is pretty amazing that we have 66 different documents here written by different people over a large span of time, and yet they're all completely consistent in the picture of God that they present. Right. You could almost call that a miracle in itself, really. Well, it is a miracle. It's a right. supernatural happening. Yeah, you can't find anything like that replicated in human writings. No. And I like to compare it to uh, if you took even a half a dozen people that witnessed a car accident, you would probably get six different stories of what they saw. Yep. So imagine 41 different authors who never met each other all writing a consistent story about this transcendent God. That's pretty amazing. Well, some of them met each other, but not all 41. Yes, but not many of them. Right. Okay, so let's look at the uh, a couple of differences real quick between Christianity and mythology. Let's compare the two. All right. Christianity is based on verifiable documented history. Mythology is based basically on imagination. Okay? Mm-hmm. Christianity describes real historical events. Mythology describes fictional events. Mm-hmm. Christianity is about real historical people. Mythology is about fictional people, mostly. Right. Christianity is based on the written historical records of the Old and New Testaments. Mythology is not based on any verifiable historical records. Mm-hmm. All right. Christianity is based on eyewitness testimony of the people and events it describes. Mythology is not based on eyewitness testimony. They're just right, stories, right. basically. Yeah, and that's where most, if you, have, if you do have the occasional historical nugget to a myth, uh, that's where the mythology comes in, is, is later writers who weren't eyewitnesses inflate the story, and that's where you get your mythological aspects. Like the Trojan Wars, you know, we, th- we think that Troy was a real place, and, you know, there was probably a war, but the rest of it is because it was all added to centuries later. Right. Well, you could actually, I would describe that as kind of mixing history and mythology together. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Uh, Another uh, 
description of Christianity is that the the biblical records of it are written in the literary style of history. There right. is actually a literary style that scholars recognize as a historical account. Right. And that mythology is written in the literary style of myth, which is a whole different style of writing. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis where, you know, his area of expertise was actually medieval literature. So he said, right. you know, I am an expert in mythology. That's what I do. He said, reading the Bible is not any, that's the first thing that strikes you, is that this is not reading mythology. Right. Yes, the, the Old and New Testaments are written in a totally different style, for instance, than the Iliad or the Odyssey. Exactly. Is written. Okay, another uh, description. Or even things like the Bhagavad you know, other religious texts, which have a lot of mythology in them. Right, right. Okay, another description of Christianity would be that it's recognized by most scholars as real history. Mm -hmm. Whereas mythology is recognized by most scholars as myth. They, right. they understand the difference between the two and they separate them, mm -hmm. even though the common person today often doesn't discriminate between the two. Right. Okay, and the last point I have here is that there is a lot of archaeological support for the events and people that the Bible, the biblical documents describe. However, mythology has no archaeological support for the events and the people that it describes. Right. A myth is fiction, so you wouldn't expect to find physical proof of that. So my conclusion is, to attempt to equate Zeus or Apollo with Jehovah or Jesus Christ is simply irrational and flies in the face of everything we know about real people, real history, and real historical scholarship. Excellent. Busted. Very good. Thank you, Kirk. Okay. Well, uh, if we, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. I'm Kevin Harrow. And we're going to be talking today about a few more talks that I went to at the National Apologetics Conference. And the first one I thought we'd cover, this was a very interesting talk done by Frank Turek. And it's he titled it, The Forgotten Truth About Science. So he starts out by asking, what is science? So let me ask you guys, what would be a good definition for science? Kevin, you want to try that one? I would say a method into inquiry to discover causes and effects. Excellent. Very good. Sometimes I think science is used as a, just a general term for knowledge. Yeah. Right. Uh, or it's like the search for truth, because, you know, the old term basically used to be philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. The study of wisdom, the search for wisdom. Yes. So there's that sense of it. Could I also add that it could be described as um, truth proved by observation and experiment? There you go. Now, that brings out the point of what he was talking about, is that there are actually different kinds of science. <laughs> So he, in general, he described science as a search for causes, right? A search for causes where you're trying to determine if something is an intelligent cause or a non-intelligent cause. Hmm. And he gave the example of, you know, what is the difference between the Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore, <laughs> right? Well, it's kind of obvious. Grand Canyon is caused by a non-intelligent process. Right? Lots of water, lots of sediments, and you get a, a big Grand Canyon. Whereas Mount Rushmore 
doesn't matter how much or how little water you have, uh, you're not going to get Mount Rushmore. It obviously was caused by an intelligence. Well, you could also describe the difference between them as being one you have to climb up and the other one you can fall into. Okay. Well, that's true, too. That's true, too. <laughs> Unless you already fell, then you'd have to climb back up. There that's you go. true. Or you could be at the top of Mount Rushmore looking down. Yes, that's true. Okay. Okay, you just blew that definition. <laughs> I did. Knocked that one right out of the park. You just busted that myth. So he, um, and, and then he mentioned the Buddha statues, you know, that were in Afghanistan that the Taliban blew up. They dynamited it, you know, but there were these beautiful carvings into the side of the rock face there of uh, Buddha, right? Was that caused by wind and rain and ice and, and things? No, right? Mm -hmm. So he talked about science using the principle of uniformity, right? The principle of uniformity is that the causes which are in effect today are the same kind of causes which were in effect in the past. So, you know, it, we don't want to presuppose that there was some strange time in the past when there were different causes. So if we see things that are intelligently caused today, we ought to realize that those are the same kind of causes that were in effect in the past. If something is the result of intelligence, then you have to admit that based on the principle of uniformity that it is intelligently caused. So he says there's two types of science. There's empirical science, right? And that's what you were alluding to, Kirk, the, where you do studies, where you do experiments, you present your data. It's repeatable. Other scientists will look at your data. They will go to the laboratory and they will try to duplicate it. Although I, I, I did read something interesting that in actuality, very few experiments are ever repeated. Really? So, yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. It's only if it is something controversial, then people will want to repeat the experiment. But a lot of science they find out is wrong because some things don't work the way that prior experiments said they would. And then somebody finally goes back and redoes an experiment from before and find out, find out it was wrong. So, yeah, there's a kind of a myth out there that scientists are constantly repeating each other's experiments. Well, they don't do that. I mean, think about it. You know, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for somebody to do research that's already been done? That's Nobody, true. you know, very rarely. But anyway, the idea is that you would be able to repeat it and then it, you would verify the data. So that's empirical science. But then there's another type of science called forensic science. And this is science about the past. So it's a historical type of science. And, you know, it's the kind of thing, forensics, we think of, you know, looking at a murder case and, you know, how do we know who did this? Was Did this person die of natural causes or were they actually murdered? But it also applies to things like how did life originate? Origin science. Right. It's origin science. It's where did things come from? So because it only happened one time. Now, that could in itself be an experiment. You know, why isn't it that life isn't coming into exist in existence now? Well, OK, you know, the create a special conditions that it could have only happened in the past. All right. So right there, you're suspect because you're breaking the principle of uniformity. But still, they try to create experiments that might duplicate a mythical past and see if you can't get life that way. 
What's interesting, but, uh, when I was looking up definitions in the dictionary, mm-hmm. I also happened to look up science. Yes. And one of the definitions of science, uh, it gave some examples of different sciences like you're talking about, and it mentioned one of the sciences, uh, it described theology as being a science. It called yes, it the of science of understanding God. Absolutely. Yeah, the, um, yeah, atheists won't want to hear that, though. Yeah, but the question would be, why would they label it that way? And the only thing I can think of is theology's intent is to discover the reality about God and not a mythology about God, the real deal. Right. Well, it's and of course, you know, the beginnings of science, the universities that developed from uh, Christianity and, you know, focused on theology. And I think there's a a phrase that theology is the handmaid of science, you know, so. Well, one of the definitions... Oh, it's theology is the queen of the sciences. I one think it's... The, so who's the handmaid? It must be philosophy. philosophy yeah, yes. philosophy is the handmaid of science. One of but the definitions the of science was, uh, was understanding knowledge. So in that context, theology is understanding knowledge of God. Right. That's right. why it's a science. So Frank Turek said that about the forensic, the important thing to remember about the forensic type of science is that you have to interpret the data, right? Because you can't experiment on it, right? Very difficult to experiment, very difficult to bring the uh, murder victim back to life and watch him die again over and over so that you can see how he died, right? You, you have to just interpret what's there. Unless a security camera caught it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even that, you got to look at the data and see you may be able to interpret the data, say, as a forgery. Right, that would be right. evident, presented as evidence, not the actual murder itself. Right. It's not the actual event. Right. It's just a representation of it in digital format. I remember a story about a guy who went to prison. He was at a birthday party. He had 50 eyewitnesses put him at that birthday party, and he was arrested for bank robbery. And because of a single fingerprint that was on the counter of the bank that was robbed while he was at this birthday party, and the jury believed the fingerprint over the 50 witnesses, well, it turned out, and you, and you might say, okay, well, you know, fingerprint's pretty foolproof, right? Well, it turned out that the investigating police officer pulled the guy's fingerprints from the police file, took some tape the fingerprint tape and put it and photocopied the the fingerprint and then put the tape on the finger on the card from the police file and the guy hired a, a lawyer who figured out that the fingerprint was an 100% identical match to the to the copy that was already in the police records and so since that would be nearly impossible, there's no way that somebody would leave a fingerprint exactly the same, uh, you know, at two different times. That's how they were able to prove. And then they also examined the powder that was on the sample, and it wasn't fingerprint powder. It was Xerox copy powder. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing that, that they didn't believe the 50 witnesses, though. That's right. They did not believe because they had a single fingerprint. <laughs> so... So you have to be careful. And uh, Frank mentions, you know, about life. You know, bacteria aren't, don't come with labels, right? They don't come labeled, designed by God, or uh, started from amino acids uh, in a small, warm pond somewhere. 
right? So he says, you know, what is it that is forgotten about science? What is this thing? He said, that, remember, the talk was titled Forgotten Truth About Science. But before he tells you, he ta- talks about an example of a forensic science study about the murder trial of O.J. Simpson. Right, So for our younger listeners who may not remember, in 1994, Nicole Simpson and Ronald Goldman were brutally murdered, and O.J. Simpson was the prime suspect. So uh, some of the evidence that was uh, put forward in his trial was that there was blood, uh, Simpson's blood was at the scene, that his footprints were in the blood at the scene, that Nicole's blood was on his socks in his bedroom, and that all three persons' blood was in the Bronco that he was driving. And a bunch of other stuff, you know, witnesses who saw the Bronco and things like that. Um, then the defense, of course, put up that, you know, well, the investigating police officer was a racist and he could have planted all this stuff and things like that. So the interesting thing is that NBC did a poll in 2004 of over a thousand people did they think that O.J. Simpson was guilty? And by the way, again, for those who don't remember this happening live, O.J. was found not guilty. Well, 77% of people believe that he was guilty. But the interesting thing is that if you broke it down by black versus white, 87% of whites think he was guilty, but only 27% of blacks think he was guilty. So the whole point is that data is interpreted, right? That's the forgotten thing about science. The data is interpreted. And he brought up the Piltdown Man, right? <laughs> Look at the Piltdown Man. The Piltdown Man was a discovery in 1912 of a link between ape and humans. And for 40 years, it reigned as evidence for evolution and was taught in the schools and heavily promoted even though, as far back as a year later, a scientist published in uh, the journal Nature that he thought that Piltdown Man was actually just a human skull and an orangutan jaw. But because it was so provided so much support for evolution, it was pushed forward and taught nonetheless, even though there was immediately skepticism about it. And it turned out in 1953, it was exposed that it was actually a modern human skull. It was an orangutan jaw and, and chimpanzee teeth. And the teeth were filed and the, the bones were stained to make them look ancient. Mm-hmm. So there may be evidence out there, but it depends on how you interpret it, right? I mean, the bones didn't say, uh, you know, I am X number of years old and, you know, I am a... Uh, a quasi halfway between ape and human, right? They didn't say that. Those bones were interpreted by scientists as if they were. It's not like on the old Batman TV show where everything was labeled. (laughs) The bat poles, the bat computer, the bat suit, the bat whatever. (laughs) Right. There's also the uh, perception or illusion that if the word scientist is in front of your name, that instantly means that you're purely objective. You have no preconceptions about anything. And uh, I remember Paul Copen talked about how even scientists go into their scientific endeavors with presumptions. First of all, presuming that A, they can figure something out and that B, things are figure outable. 
Right. So it is a an illusion. Yes, scientists surely, I'm sure, 99% of them do strive for objectivity, but that doesn't. It is not an absolute automatic given. Right. It was funny. I don't know if I told you, Kirk, when I was giving that talk to the atheist group up in North Jersey, one of the atheists, I I mentioned something about, you know, this idea of science not being completely infallible. And this guy said, no, no, no. Every scientist always tells the truth. They always present their data without any interpretation on their part. And they they don't fudge anything, or they wouldn't be a true scientist, he said. Wow. And I just I just stared in incredulity, you know, thinking, well, okay, which one of these atheists is going to jump on that comment? You know, it was such a uh, evidence of blind faith, uh, you know, like you don't even see in Christian churches, you know. And, and uh, this 30-year-old guy still puts his teeth under his pillow for the tooth fairy, right? That was amazing. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> You've been wondering why you never get oh oh does your wife put a dollar under there for you? That's my kid's college fund right there. <laughs> well, this uh, Frank Turk talk. He mentioned global warming. Here's another example, right? Global warming. You got data, right? You have a bunch of data, but what is your interpretation of that data? That's one of the reasons why we talk about the global warming hoax on. <laughs> The show a lot because it points to the incredulity of the atheists. They are so fixated on, you know, science is always perfect and so perfect that we have to stop any scientist who disagrees with us and make sure that they get fired. You know, um, because they're not a true scientist if they don't agree with us. Right. Exactly. That's (laughs) right. So, you know, it, it gets back to the idea that people Uh, have agendas, right? Like atheists do not want to be held accountable to God. That's one of their major agendas. So you have to ask the question, are people just seeing what they want to see? When they see the data, they see, for instance, the data that the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, is increasing, and they see that the temperature is increasing. So what do they do? They jump to a conclusion that is not warranted, they conclude that the carbon dioxide is causing the temperature increase. And that just ain't necessarily true. This is the fallacy of correspondence not being causation. It could be just the opposite. It could be that when the temperature rises, more carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere, which is the case. We happen to know that the ocean contains massive amounts of carbon dioxide, which is released when the temperature rises. And when the temperature falls, the carbon dioxide is absorbed back into the ocean. They also make the assumption that the problem is that the carbon dioxide is coming from automobile emissions and not from volcanoes or other natural sources of carbon dioxide, such as plants. They're preconceived notions that capitalism is evil, industry is evil, big business is evil. We need to get back to the Rousseauian noble savage. We need to go back to the times of the American Indians and live in campsites in peace with nature and harmony. And then we'll all be happy. Yeah, but try to come into this guy's house and take his microwave away from him and see what he does. (laughs) Hey, you know what? They don't believe in nuclear science. They don't believe in nuclear power. 
right? I mean, so I think they would give away their microwaves. Uh, you know, these people are really uh, serious. You know, they don't care about the number of people who die because there's no DDT to kill the mosquitoes in Africa. They don't care that there are millions of people mm. every year. Yeah. So anyways, this is called confirmation bias, right? Where you get the data and you just interpret it the way you want it. You see what you want to see. So Frank Turk points out that all data is interpreted. So he has this saying that he will say on his radio show and his blog a lot. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. But so the, thing, he, the thing that really bothers me a lot of times about the things that atheists say, Will, is that they will try to say that, well, you interpret data, but we don't. Yeah, that's when, right. When the well, truth is both sides are interpreting the data the way they see it. Right. Anytime they say science says, well, immediately a red flag should go up. Science doesn't say that, right? Yep. Doesn't say that. Scientists do. Right. Some well, scientists, not all scientists, usually. Yeah, exactly. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rasio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm the mythical Kirk Hastings. I'm the reality Kevin Harold. <laughs> and we're talking about a talk that I heard at the National Apologetics Conference from Frank Turek called Forgotten Truth About Science. So we're going over some of my notes from that talk. And we got to the point, science doesn't say anything scientists do. So he now talked about what Kevin brought up a few minutes ago about how science is actually built upon philosophy. Without philosophy, you don't have science. Hmm. And fortunately, the way education is done today, a lot of scientists don't study philosophy. And so they don't realize how dependent they are on good philosophy. Without good philosophy, you cannot have good science. And this is a lot of where scientists make mistakes, where they interpret the data in a faulty way because they're not paying attention to the philosophy that underlies their work. So what philosophy is science built on? Well, how about the orderliness of natural laws? Right? That is a concept that cannot itself be proven by science, but is that science depends on that belief, the belief that natural laws are orderly, that they're the same in this part of the world as on the other side of the world. Keith, maybe somebody is new to subject of apologetics or something, and probably their flags just went up and said, what? What? Science proves natural laws all the time every time a scientist does something that proves there's laws so he would probably think that you're full baloney right now why would you say science itself or scientism can't prove orderly natural laws the validity of orderly natural laws well this is something that the atheist david hume pointed out that it doesn't matter how many times you repeat an experiment, there's you actually can't prove that the next time you do it, it isn't going to come out different. You just have to believe that that's the way it's going to be. So that's one of the things you have to have as a philosophical basis before you can do science. Another would be the law of causality, right? That there is cause and effect, that there, if you see an effect, there was a cause for it. Now, atheism has gone a long way to rejecting that now. And as they reject this idea, they endanger science itself by saying that you can have effects with no causes. Then what's the point of doing science, right? Science is a search for causes. 
So you have to believe in causality, that effects have causes. You also have to believe in uniformity, right? And we talked about that, the law of uniformity. Uh, Laws of logic, right? Those are prior to doing the scientific experiments. Uh, Laws of reason, that you are able to reason, that you have free will, right? That you're actually doing this of your own free will and that you're actually thinking about this experiment of your own free will. If if the experiment you're doing is just the result of chemical firings in your head, then there's no reason to think that anything you're doing is related to the real world. It can just be the chemicals going off in your head. <laughs> the belief in realism, right, that there, the table is real, you know, the chemicals that you're working with, those are actually real. Uh, even morality is important. Is this a moral experiment that you're doing or what are the moral interpretations of the data that you're getting? All of these come prior. Another common assumption uh, by many scientists today is naturalism. They believe that there's a natural cause for everything and that the supernatural is impossible. Yeah, that's right. And that is a prior commitment. It's a philosophical commitment prior to their work. Right. So he pointed out a study that showed that 30% of scientists admit to fudging their data (laughs) in contradiction to my young friend at the uh, Atheist Club. Only 30%? (laughs) Yeah, well, 30% admitted. Okay. (laughs) So so it could even be higher. (laughs) That's probably what they would, an issue of ethics... They would probably say the ends justify the means and that because they didn't have the right funding or the right tools, they must fudge their data to present evidence. Otherwise, there'll be a loss of value to the scientific study, even though ethically it's built on a lie. That's exactly the uh, explanation um, for the global warming data that was falsified. And that's what they said. So, um, so before a scientist works on some on science, you know, on an experiment or looking at some forensic data of a historical event in the past, scientists use philosophy to determine what the rules of science are going to be. Right? We're only going to consider natural causes. We're not going to consider any supernatural causes. That would be a philosophical rule that you just make up ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But then afterward. The scientists use philosophy to interpret the data. So depending on their philosophical view of things. He gave the uh, example, we've talked about this in the past, of let's say that you know, you're in high school and you come home from school and you on the kitchen table there is Scrabble letters and it says, take out the garbage, mom. Well, it's spelled out in Scrabble letters and there's a bag of Scrabble letters right next to it. So you could just say, oh, well, I guess the bag of Scrabble letters fell over. And you could interpret the data that way, that there could not be an intelligent cause for this message. There must only be a non-intelligent cause. What is the natural cause for this? Okay, well, the natural cause is the Scrabble bag fell over, and it's spelled out, take out the garbage, mom. What do you think? You think you can uh, just plunk yourself down and watch television? And it's just a coincidence that the letters came out that way. Exactly. Just a coinky dink. <laughs> so he gave the example of the DNA in an amoeba being the equivalent of 1,000 volumes of an encyclopedia. So 
it is obvious that life is intelligently designed. You don't get information from nothing, but people still insist that they have to explain things naturally, even though it's obvious that it is intelligently designed. Um, then he, oh, he talked about this uh, funny event that happened. This evolutionist, Tim Barra, in a, I guess he was doing a debate with a non-evolutionist, and he talked about the example of the evolution of the Corvette. Did you hear about this? Sounds familiar. Yeah, so he, he talked about how the Corvette has changed over time, and that's a perfect example of how things evolve over time. Yeah, I've heard that. So he was using that. <laughs> Forgetting that intelligent designers designed each model of the car. <laughs> That's right. So, But he did not see that. I mean, think about it. Here he is. He invented that description, right? And thought that that was an appropriate description of what evolution was like. Why? <laughs> because he's totally blinded by his own philosophical views that there has to be a natural explanation. It was He was completely oblivious to the fact that this was an incredible argument for intelligent design. Now, if we had one single Corvette that changed into all these different models on its own without any help, then I might believe that evolution is true. Right, right. Now, we've talked about this in the past, too, about how given this philosophical basis for doing science, there's a very interesting concept that has been brought out. It was actually first talked about by Darwin himself, and it's called Darwin's Doubt. Do you, do you remember this? No, I don't. Okay. Darwin doubted that you could be able to trust the reasonings of a mind that had developed from a monkey's brain, right? Why? <laughs> Why? Well, because... What it, what For what reason do you think that mind developed? Did it develop for the purposes of discovering truth and logic and, and reasoning? According to evolution, it developed just for survival. So the results of the mind, the results of the brain, don't have to do, have to do anything with truth or logic. All they have to do is make sure that you survive. So your brain could be telling you that your thoughts are logical and your thoughts make sense, when in reality they don't. Because all that's important to the brain is that you survive. It's your behavior. So as long as you behave in a way that helps you survive, uh, you get that brain and that brain will survive. So this has been further developed by, it was actually brought out again by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis recognized this problem also, but it's been worked out in full detail by Alvin Plantinga, and he talks about, I think his book is called Where the Problem Really Lies. That's Science and Religion, Where the Problem Really Lies. And he realizes, he, he points out that the true war is not between science and Christianity or science and religion. It's actually between science and atheism. Because atheism undermines science by saying that everything that everything every reasoning that you come to in your head is just the product of chemicals and electri electricity. Hmm. So science is built on metaphysical realities, right? 
where do those medical metaphysical realities come from or how do we know them well theism is the only basis for this idea of science right atheism undermines it atheism cannot explain where these metaphysical realities come from why would you say that keith why can't atheism explain it if atheism is all about it's all chemical natural processes well that's the problem Okay. So chemical natural processes don't necessarily lead to reason, right, or truth. So imagine you can – this is one of the ways that Alvin Plantinga describes it is imagine a proto-brain where the caveman, right, this early brain is sees a lion and he wants to know he, – he's thinking, oh, I see a lion. What should I do? Oh, I know. I'll go and hug the lion. And what does he do? He runs into a cave and hides. Okay, so all of this is completely irrational, doesn't make sense, but it still works. It still makes the caveman survive. So he can have a completely irrational thought, irrational ideas. All that matters is that he survives. In other words, he, his thinking is really isn't correct, but it works. So if it works, it must be true. That would be the illusion. Right, you have an illusion that you would call truth, right? And he thinks he's loving the lion by going and hiding in a cave. Or you could say it another way by um, he sees a dog, which is a friendly dog, but he thinks in his mind, well, this dog will probably try to eat me, so I better run away from it. So he runs away, but his action doesn't really conform to the reality of the situation in that the dog is friendly and wants to be his friend. Or he could even come and pet the dog and think that he's running away. Right. Mm. I mean, that's how irrational it can be. And then he gets the dog to help him. Right. The dog becomes his friend and helps him. And so he survives better because thinking that you're running away when you're actually taking care of the dog is helps you survive. Right. Okay. It doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what you do. So you're saying that rationality and um, survival are not the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. So there's no reason to trust your brain, basically. If you are just the evolutionary after effects of a random process, that you are only the results of chemicals and electrons in your brain, there's absolutely no reason to trust what you're thinking. So therefore, there is no reason to trust atheism, right? Right, because your brain could be lying to you when it says there isn't such a thing as God. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so only in the theistic model do you have enough resources to be the foundation for science, and that is why science came out of Christianity, as many, many historians have proven. Well, uh, it's been great having everybody in the, the studio today. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.